From 1984 through 1991, thousands of fires were intentionally set from Southern California to the Central Coast to the Central Valley and countless places in between. Homes, businesses, dry brush, nothing was off limits. The arsonist left virtually nothing behind in the way of evidence that could ever be traced back to him for years. The damage and destruction soared into the millions, countless millions, and four innocent lives were lost. The arsonist was brazen. He set fires with impunity, and he managed to get away with it for a long time until he finally slipped up and left behind a clue that would eventually lead investigators right to him. It was then that it became clear why this pyromaniac was able to set fire after fire after fire while managing to elude capture. He was one of them, often investigating the very fires that he was setting, busting arsonists while moonlighting as one. Driven by a desire for attention, to be a hero, to be the very best at arson investigation, to garner recognition for his dedication to his job, while he steadily rose through the ranks. But there was also an insatiable desire to feed his own sadomasochistic sexual urges, which for him was to watch things burn. It took investigators years to catch on to him. And even when he did come up as a possible suspect, nobody who knew him or worked with him were even willing to entertain the possibility that he was the arsonist that they sought. This only emboldened him even more and allowed for the devastation and destruction to continue for much longer than it should have. Even years later, there are still many who refuse to believe that he was responsible. Join me as I tell this story of the most prolific serial arsonist the state of California, possibly the entire country, had ever seen. You are listening to California Dreaming, and this is the tale of the Firestarter. Hello and welcome back to the show. This is a completely independent, ad-free, one-woman production, and there are a number of ways that you can support the show. You can leave a review on Apple Podcasts or any of the platforms that you listen to your shows on. That will help give us more visibility and it pushes us up the charts where new listeners are able to find us. You can recommend us in True Crime Podcast fan groups on Facebook. You can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram. And if you simply can't get enough of California Dreaming, you can subscribe to our Patreon, where you can binge dozens of exclusive full-length episodes of the show. And if a subscription just isn't your thing, you can help out with a one-time donation through PayPal using our email, californiapod at gmail.com. All right, let's get back to our story. In the last part, we left off with John Orr finally having been arrested. Even though the investigators still had a lot of work to do to build their case, they went ahead and took him in. They had to. Clearly, this guy was in the vicinity of the most recent fires, the one at the Warner Brothers studio lot, and the series of brush fires that broke out on November 22nd and November 23rd, respectively. There was a very real fear that if they didn't stop him immediately, that lives were going to be lost and they just couldn't sit back anymore and wait for that to happen. 
When he was taken into custody, he spoke briefly with the investigators on the case, but eventually he invoked his right to remain silent and to have an attorney, effectively halting any questioning by members of the task force. Orr's wife, Wanda, retained him an attorney. He made bail and was out on home confinement. At this point, the case was circumstantial. So with Orr being monitored, the task force would be able to continue to investigate. Even with their strongest piece of circumstantial evidence being the fingerprint that was found on the incendiary device up in Bakersfield, it is possible that a savvy attorney could raise doubts about how that fingerprint got on that piece of evidence. Not to mention the fact that Orr's fingerprint was actually compared to the fingerprint in evidence several years earlier, but the ATF agent, who was the fingerprint expert, had failed to make the match demonstrative of inept and shoddy work should it be presented that way by a good defense attorney. The federal prosecutors assigned to the case were Stefan Steen at the helm along with U.S. Attorney Walter Brown, both known to be energetic, effective attorneys, both of them under the age of 35. While they were confident in their abilities to try and win their cases, when they were assigned to prosecute John Orr, they were concerned because of how circumstantial the case actually was. The only thing that they were truly able to hang their hats on was that fingerprint. But just to make sure, they sent it to at least six more experts to confirm the match. Without that print, there was no way that they'd be able to successfully prosecute the case. Task Force members Mike Matassa and Greg Lucero worked closely with the prosecution team in order to solidify the case against Orr. Ultimately, they would end up spending countless hours together, making sure that they got this one right. One of the things that federal prosecutors needed to do was to read Orr's manuscript entitled Points of Origin. When they finally dove into it, the more they read, the more their confidence in their case against Orr grew. And the reason for this? Orr was using the fires that he had set in real life and how those fires played out and how the investigation unfolded as the materials that he would use directly in his writings. For example, in the book, Orr wrote of a fire that broke out in a fabric store in Fresno during the same time period when there had been a three-day arson seminar also in Fresno. And this was the thing that actually happened in real life too. There was that seminar in Fresno and then there were some arsons in Fresno. In another chapter, Orr wrote of some brush fire set on the hillsides that sounded very much like the hills above Glendale. In the book, Orr's main character, Aaron Stiles, would always masturbate wildly as he watched the fires burn. And dreamers, unfortunately, we can just imagine that this is exactly what John Orr was doing. I know, I threw up in my mouth a little bit too. After the task force was finished reading and rereading the manuscript, they lost count as to how many times Stiles became erect and or pleasured himself while watching the fires that he set burned. And it wasn't just the arsonist. The fictional arson investigator chasing Stiles, Phil Langtree, he also had his fair share of erections as well. The fictional Langtree had a relationship with a woman named Chris, and in real life, 
John Orr had a woman on the side also named Chris. In Orr's manuscript, the investigator Langtree, he tells his girlfriend Chris that to an arsonist, fire is a friend, if not a lover, and it turns into a sexual thing for the arsonist. The fictional Chris doesn't believe him and calls bullshit. When trying to relate this case to the case against John Orr, the task force was skeptical. The fire being the arsonist lover, that made no sense to anyone at all. But some of them were like, well, we do know that John Orr has been known to tell people that his job was his mistress. So there had been times when John Orr had made some sexual innuendos and references in relating them to the fires. They couldn't deny the fact that John Orr's work of fiction had a lot of parallels to the nonfiction events. They all knew that Orr was a womanizer, and maybe this was his way of rationalizing his behavior. But then again, if Orr is as prolific an arsonist as they think that he is, maybe he was on this never-ending quest to obtain the thing that he most desired, which was fire, followed up with sexual pleasure. Orr wrote in another chapter how two fires had been set in one day, and those fires were at a store where they had a display of window panels and curtains. And we know that curtains were lit in at least one of the retail store fires. Orr wrote in his manuscript about the formation of a task force. And as investigators continued to study this manuscript, it was clear that the author knew much more about every fire than the task force ever did. There was information about some of the fires that the real-life task force were completely unaware of. They also noticed that the main character, Aaron Stiles, he spoke of the fires as if he owned them. He called each one of them his fire. In the book, Stiles also described being able to divorce himself from the side of him that was an arsonist, so he would be able to do his day-to-day work as a fire investigator. When the task force went back in time, they realized that as soon as Orr was hired in the Glendale Fire Department, brush fires in the area, particularly in the foothills, began to grow steadily year after year. Now that it was beginning to sink in for the dozens and dozens of people who Orr worked with over the years that he was being charged as the serial arsonist, it had everyone thinking back on all the interactions that they ever had with him. And it also had them thinking about how they were going to look at those interactions differently now that they were aware that he may very well have been the one setting those very fires that they had worked on together. For example, there were a number of arson investigators who would begin trying in vain to figure out where and how a fire was started. And while they stood there trying to figure it out, here comes John Orr waddling up to the scene, standing there, just glancing around at a burnt out area, rubbing his double chin in deep thought. And eventually, like magic, he would point to an area and say, this fire started over yonder. And just like that, He'd go over, he'd point to the origin that he somehow was able to identify. He looked around a little bit and 
all of a sudden he'd come up with whatever may have been the actual incendiary device. It was amazing. People were like blown away, like, wow, this is like close-up street magic. They really thought Orr was like this totally brilliant arson investigator, that he had this instinctiveness about him that was otherworldly, as if he was some sort of fire wizard. When really the fact of the matter was, John Orr was nothing more than an inadequate, incompetent, pathetic piece of shit of human garbage that had put other people's lives at risk so he could pretend to swoop in and save the day. John Orr was a nobody, and he would always be a nobody, and he is going to die a nobody. And it makes me mad because honestly, there are few ways in this world to die a terrifying death. And for many of us, dying in a fire is one of them. Of the hundreds and hundreds into the thousands of fires that this shitbag set, it's amazing that only four people died. But the numbers of people who ran for their lives from all of those fires, the terror and fear that this man inflicted on his own community, putting not only innocent people's lives in danger, but also his fellow firefighters as well. All because John Orr was a small man with a small ego and an even smaller everything. So there had been a time when several arson investigators got together to attempt a stakeout type of operation to try and catch the arsonists. Fires were being set in the foothills, so they decided to divide up the area with one person staking out each area by car. Of course, John Orr was one of them, which means this whole effort was all for naught. As they worked the stakeout, fires would suddenly start within moments of an investigator having driven right past that exact spot. It was absolutely frustrating to think that this arsonist seemed to be everywhere and nowhere simultaneously. They felt like they were chasing a ghost. The reality was they were chasing an asshole who was one of their own. They ended up giving up, feeling defeated, and they never did solve that series of arsons or immensely enjoyed playing these games with his colleagues. U.S. Attorney Stein and Brown developed a list of similarities between John Orr and the main character of his book, Aaron Stiles. These similarities were listed in Fire Lover. There's nine of them, and they are as follows. One, John Orr and Aaron Stiles both have careers as firefighters. Number two, neither Orr nor Stiles smoked cigarettes. Number three, both Orr and Stiles used a delayed incendiary device that gave them a 10 to 15 minute head start. Number four, in Orr's original three chapters of the manuscript that he wrote, the delay device used by the fictional Aaron Stiles was a match attached to a cigarette and then placed inside of a brown paper bag. If you remember, there were paper bags found among Orr's things when he was arrested. However, Orr stopped writing this particular version of the manuscript and started all over again. He got about three chapters in and decided that he was going to change the incendiary device to some dried, flammable glue placed on the cigarette itself. 
Investigators believe that Orr realized that the delay device in the book matched too closely to the delay devices in the real-life fires, and his fiction story was mirroring his fires in real life, so much so that someone might catch on or be suspicious. Of course, if he were to ever publish the book, his colleagues may have picked up a copy and read it and made that connection, so he started over again, changing the device. Number five, both Styles and Orr started fires in retail stores in the Los Angeles area while the stores were open for business by setting a delayed incendiary device in bins or displays of highly flammable materials. Number six, both Styles and Orr started a fire in a fabric store specifically in the section where there was a curtain display. And they both set multiple fires at stores in and around Los Angeles, specifically in displays of items made out of styrofoam. Number seven, Aaron Stiles set multiple fires in a hardware store named Cal's, where Orr set fires in a hardware store named Oli's. Number eight, both Stiles and Orr had the MO of setting multiple fires, one right after the other, in stores that were a short distance away from one another. And number nine, Aaron Stiles, in the book, had set a series of fires while traveling to and from a conference at the Fresno Holiday Inn in the cities of Fresno, Tulare, and Bakersfield, which is exactly what Orr had done in January of 1987. In Wamba's book, all of this evidence that was found in the manuscript, as well as those cover letters to literary agents and whatnot, he described all of this stuff as a prosecutorial bonanza of evidence. The prosecution were chomping at the bit to get this to trial. And if they could actually get Orr on the stand, they would rake him over the coals. And hands down, the biggest question that they would have for him was this. If you knew you were under federal investigation for arson, why did you never come and talk to anyone about it? You found yourself in the middle of a massive investigation, yet you stayed quiet. Explain yourself. Orr's book contained many condescending and insulting passages directed towards law enforcement when he should have been directing them at himself. I'm just kidding. He insulted law enforcement through both Aaron Stiles and Phil Langtree, the arsonist and the investigator, the both of them despised police officers. We know that Orr had a long-standing hatred for police, too. What surprised the task force is how many people who were in the arson investigation field remained skeptical of the allegations that were being made against Orr. In fact, they were quite angry and critical of the case and those who were in charge of it. But they could not change the fact that there were portions of Orr's book that he simply would not have been able to write unless he had been the one responsible for the fires. The book had details that no investigator had known. In the book, the Cal's hardware store fire had been ruled an accident, and it infuriated Aaron Stiles. The accidental fire ruling in the real-life fire at Oli's was something that John Orr carried with him for years. He complained about it regularly enough for most people to know how much it actually bothered him. 
A month after the Ole's fire, another fire broke out at a different Ole's in order to prove that the first one wasn't an accident. And Aaron Style did the exact same thing in his manuscript. When it came to the case against John Orr, why was the decision made to prosecute this in federal court as opposed to state court? Well, part of it was strategy. They had their strongest case against Orr in the most recent fires. And because the fires were set in places that had an impact on interstate commerce, such as the freeways used to transport stuff in and out of California, it qualified to be tried at the federal level. However, when it came to their most serious case, the Ole's Home Center fire where four people perished, the statute of limitations on the arson had expired even though people had died in the fire and had been ruled an accident. If they moved forward with the case that they did have against Orr and they got a conviction, it would give the investigators plenty of time it would give them the time that they needed to build a capital murder case against or for the Ole's fire since there is no statute of limitations on murder. The trial of the U.S. government versus John Orr was almost ready to go by the spring of 1992 at the federal court located in Fresno. The prosecution was ready to go. They had their opening remarks written. Even though the case was very complex, they were going to try to make it as simple as possible for the jury. Their case was circumstantial. There were no eyewitnesses. So they knew that they were going to have to appeal to the jury's common sense. On Monday, April 6, 1992, one week before Orr was to stand trial, his attorney filed a motion to have his client's manuscript and those cover letters addressed to literary agents thrown out on the grounds that they were hearsay. It took everything in the prosecutor's power to stop themselves from laughing at the ridiculousness of that motion. It didn't take a genius to realize that the book and the real-life case were so similar to one another, it was practically a roadmap. But the prosecutors quickly lost the urge to laugh at the motion when the judge actually granted it. He decided to toss out the manuscript and the cover letters, not because they were hearsay, because they weren't. It was because he felt that they were too prejudicial. The actions of the fictional arsonist were not all that uncommon, as if there were a whole bunch of arsonists running around all doing the same thing, setting all the same kind of fires with the same MOs, right? The judge said that the things the fictional arsonists did weren't so different or special that they could come to the conclusion that Orr had direct knowledge of the arson that he was being charged with. Stein and Brown attempted to argue that decision, but the judge had made his ruling and he banged his gavel. They immediately requested a stay for the trial while they appealed, and the judge was cool with that. Okay, so it was a little confusing what happened here, but what I'm gathering is that Orr was facing indictment at both the state and federal levels, but the manuscript was only tossed out of the state's case. It was going to remain in place for the federal case. So while Orr was transferred to Fresno to stand trial in the federal court there, 
The state's attorneys were going to work on appealing the judge's motion to throw out Orr's manuscript. We'll come back to that later on when we get to Orr's second trial. So he was off to Fresno to face the federal charges first. He had been indicted on five counts of arson. And I found this kind of amusing. In the book, it described one of the prosecutors in Fresno had actually shook hands with John Orr. And he went on to describe his hand as fleshy, pasty, small, and feminine. How nasty is that, right? Fleshy, pasty, small, and feminine. Hardly the hands of a firefighter, right? And honestly, dreamers, that description of his hands doesn't surprise any of us, right? Right. That's because John Orr is a little bitch. Anyway, Orr also made some rounds in the media. He was giving interviews to newspapers. He appeared on Inside Edition. But no matter what Orr did or who he talked to, his little bitch ass complained about everyone and everything that he could possibly complain about. He was unhappy with the way he was presented in everything that he participated in. He accused the media of manipulating and twisting his words. He complained about the prosecutors, that they were untrustworthy and underhanded, that they were all spiteful slimeballs and he couldn't stand any of them. Like a big old crybaby, wah, 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 complain, complain, complain. And as for Orr's own defense attorney, Doug McCann, Orr hated him the most. Because that makes sense, right? And all the while, while this crap is going on with John Orr, at the same time, four Los Angeles Police Department officers, Stacy Kuhn, Lawrence Powell, Theodore Brasino, and Timothy Wind, had been on trial for using excessive force when motorist Rodney King was pulled over a little more than a year earlier in Simi Valley, California. On April 29, 1992, all four officers were acquitted and civil unrest ensued for the next six days. So some of the members of the Pillow Pyro Task Force were asked to investigate the fires that were being set in Los Angeles during the riots, and this included task force leader Mike Matassa. They wanted to look at every business that had been burnt down to try and determine if it would turn out to be a case of the actual store's owners torching their own businesses in order to cash in on the insurance, especially if their businesses were failing. So while Orr was busy being tried in federal court, the investigators in Southern California stayed pretty busy and their case was at a standstill while they tried to appeal the decision to toss out his manuscript. John R.'s first trial began on Tuesday, July 21st, 1992. At this trial, he was charged with five arsons, two in Bakersfield, one in Tulare, and one in Fresno. The main points the prosecutors wanted to get across to the jury included the information about the incendiary device, which they called Orr's signature device that he used at pretty much every single fire. There was the fact that they had his fingerprint on one of the devices that they found, the fact that Orr had discovered the tracking device on his vehicle, as well as the fact that he never came to anyone to question why he was being tracked. It was even pointed out that in the letters that John Orr wrote to one of those literary agents that he had, 
he stated that he had even been considered a suspect, and all of this demonstrated a consciousness of guilt. Orr's attorney attempted to argue that he had a certificate that he had completed the courses of that seminar and that this was his alibi and he could not be the arsonist because he couldn't be in two places at once. He argued that just because Orr never inquired about the tracking device didn't mean that he was guilty. In fact, it really meant nothing. As for the items found in Orr's bag, the cigarettes, the matches, the rubber bands, and a notepad with yellow paper, all of those things were used for demonstrations in the classes that John Orr taught. Orr's attorney questioned the fingerprint evidence that someone had compared the fingerprints back in 1989, yet a match was not made. It was completely overlooked. And then magically two years later, they found a match, insinuating that in those two years, the evidence could have been planted in order to frame his client. Most of the defense case was built on the mishandling of evidence and a conspiracy to frame John Orr for the arsons and that it was the investigators themselves that provided Orr with the so-called inside information that he used for his manuscript. They were the ones who provided Orr with all the evidence that they had and he turned around and used it in his book not because he was the arsonist but because he had inside information due to the fact that he worked with these people. Captain Marvin Casey, who had been waiting a very long time for this day, testified at Orr's trial. At the Kraft Mart fire of January 16, 1987, Casey had arrived at the scene and looked at the origin of the fire. There was a lot of powder around the area from being sprayed with a fire extinguisher. And in the powder, that's when he spotted the incendiary device, the cigarette with the matches and the piece of yellow paper that had been partially burned. He carefully picked the item up with a pair of forceps and packaged it. The one thing Captain Casey did not do was take pictures of the scene or pictures of the device in the spot where it was found. The defense would insist that because of that, there really is no proof that the incendiary device ever existed on the day of the fire. Captain Marvin Casey had to admit that he did not document its existence beyond placing it in an evidence envelope and sealing it. The defense attempted to poke holes in the evidence handling, that there was information missing when it came to the chain of custody, that over the years any opening and closing of the evidence package compromised the evidence because of the sloppy manner in which it was handled. He was trying to convince the jury that the piece of paper entered into the evidence was not the same piece of paper that was found the day of the Kraft Mart fire, insinuating that Orr's fingerprint had been planted. After the second day of trial, an article was printed in the LA Times with quotes from John Orr himself as he cast himself as the victim of a governmental conspiracy to frame up an innocent man and he used the assassination of John F. Kennedy as an example. He said that after Lee Harvey Oswald was killed by Jack Ruby, investigators went to the morgue where his body was at, they brought the rifle in there, and they placed Oswald's hands on it so they could frame him for Kennedy's murder, or insisted that they did the exact same thing with him and that fingerprint. That somebody got him to handle a piece of yellow paper, and then they turned around and planted it in evidence. 
So there was an odd thing that happened on the second day of trial. Orr's defense attorney, McCann, was cross-examining the lead of the task force, Mike Matassa. Agent Matassa had been asked earlier what day John Orr became a suspect. He stated that it was on April 17, 1991, the day the match to the fingerprint was made. He was asked if he was sure about the date, and Matassa said that he was. So, Orr was not a suspect on April 16th? No, he was not. Then Orr's defense attorney stated, Did you know that your investigator on the task force, Ken Croak, was in the city of Atascadero, California, a week prior to April 17th, with a photo lineup that contained Orr's picture in it, a whole week before the fingerprint was matched up? Did you know this? Matassa replied that it was not possible for Coke to have a photo line up with Orr's picture in it on that date. So it would not be possible for Orr to have been a suspect at any time before April 17th then. Matassa said that was right. He wasn't a suspect yet. And he was the one who assembled the photo lineup. And he did not do that until July, almost three months later. Then McCann asked, you had Orr's manuscript before April 17, 1991, didn't you? Matassa said, no, that isn't true. Okay, so then it isn't possible that your agent, Ken Croak, was in Atescadero, California, showing witnesses the photo lineup with Orr's picture in it. He said that could not be the case. You are under oath right now, aren't you? Yes. You wrote the affidavit in this case, is that right? Yes. When you wrote it, did you lie on it? No, I did not. The prosecutor objected, and McCann rephrased the question. Did you make any false statements in the affidavit? Matassa said that he did not. Have you seen the photo lineup? Yes, I was the one that created it. When was the picture of Orr taken? Around July of 1991. Where was it taken? At a training session? So you are telling us that it is impossible for Ken Croak to have had the picture of Orr to show around to witnesses on April 9th, 10th, or 11th. Orr was not a suspect at that time. McCann did have Matassa admit that they did lie to John Orr in order to obtain a picture of him by telling him that they were putting together some promotional materials that officials and investigators do tell lies intentionally. Matassa also admitted that they lied in order to get a copy of the manuscript by asking another arson investigator turned writer to offer to swap manuscripts with Orr. Matassa also admitted that they had the San Luis Obispo police lie to Orr about the tracking device that he found under his car. The defense wanted to know that police and federal agents are perfectly capable of telling lies when it suits them. The next day, with Matassa back on the stand, McCann wanted to show him some witness reports with photo lineups and witness statements. McCann asked, Is this report initialed by Ken Croak at the bottom? Have you seen this before? Matassa said, I have to assume I've seen it at some point. The last document, initialed by Croak and dated April 9, 1991. You've seen these, right? Yes, I must have. You said that it was impossible for Croak to have been in a Tescadero before the fingerprint match was made. Are you trying to change your testimony? 
No, I didn't say that. What did you say? I said it was impossible that Croak had a lineup of photos that included Orr. I did not say that it was impossible for him to have been in a Tuscadero. Doesn't it say that Orr's picture was in the photo spread prior to April 17th? They're incorrect. So what you're saying is that these federal documents prepared by Agent Croak are wrong? Yes, that's correct. All of them? These four documents from April 9th to 11th are all wrong. They must be because no photo lineup with Orr's picture existed before July of 1991. So Agent Croak was wrong a total of four times. Yes. And with that, the defense put forth a strong implication that the whole case was a frame job being perpetrated by the feds. Ken Croak himself was called to testify that, yes, he messed up the dates on the reports. And then another blunder by the ATF was that they improperly installed the tracking device under Orr's car that caused him to be able to notice it. And there was one more big, huge mistake that the defense was going to call them out on that might tip the jury towards reasonable doubt. This was the mistake made by a member of the Department of Justice with a long list of expert qualifications and more than two decades of experience as a latent fingerprint examiner, as well as a professor of criminology who has testified in more than 400 trials. He was called to the stand by the prosecution. With a picture of the latent print evidence collected by Captain Casey, Agent Kinney was asked by the prosecution, when you made your report about this fingerprint in 1989, what were you looking at? I examined this fingerprint as well as some copies of inked fingerprint cards of several individuals. Was one of those individuals John Leonard Orr? Yes. Did you reach a conclusion in 1989 as to whether that print matched any of the individuals you compared it to? Yes. What was your conclusion? I wasn't able to make a match, but I did feel the latent print was usable, though. Did there come a time when you looked at the fingerprint again and compared it to Orr's known prints? Yes. When? November 7, 1991. I was able to identify the print as belonging to John Orr. Which finger was the print from? Left ring finger. Can you tell us why you reached that conclusion in 1991 but failed to do so in 1989? I was given better material with which to make my examination. I was told that the fingerprint had been identified by three other experts. So the defense attorney was up next and asked, Why would you care what other experts found? Don't you have faith in your own work? Agent Kinney answered, When an expert is confronted, he has to prove the other experts wrong. You said that the print you had in 1989 was usable and identifiable, right? Yes. So it wasn't too poor of quality, right? And in 1989, your conclusion as to a match was negative. Correct. So did you make a mistake in 1989 or did you not? I did. You did make a mistake in 1989. Yes. Is this the first time that happened? No. Does it happen all the time? No. It's only happened once in the last two decades? As far as I know, it's only happened twice. 
How many prints have you looked at over the years? Millions. And that's what the jury would hear of that. After two decades of experience, having examined millions of fingerprints, Agent Richard Kinney had only made two mistakes. But it just so happened to be that one of them was the case that John Orr was involved with, arguably their biggest arson case of the century. One of the witnesses that would eventually be called to testify on behalf of Orr was his fourth wife, Wanda. I don't really want to get too much into her testimony, but there is one portion that I did want to go over. She was asked by the defense attorney, McCann, about when she and Orr got married. She said that they were wed on November 21st, 1986, and that would be two months before the series of fires in the Central Valley in Fresno, Tulare, and Bakersfield, when there was that three-day seminar in Fresno. Orr's attorney presented a wedding photo. It showed him with a beard. McCann asked, Did you go on a honeymoon? And she said that they did. Next, McCann showed a picture of Orr taken in December of 1986. He still had the beard. From there, the attorneys had a sidebar with the judge to discuss another photo of John Orr with a beard. The date on the back of it said January 17, 1987, which is the day after the Kraftmark fire in Bakersfield. Eventually, McCann got back to questioning Wanda. What do you see in this photo? She said, that's John, the house and furniture on the front lawn. We had a yard sale that day. Then he asked, when was the yard sale? Wanda stated that she believed it was on the 17th of January. How do you know for sure that it was January 17th? This is from my album. I date everything that goes into the album. Under cross-examination, the prosecutor asked, Do you specifically recall the yard sale being on January 17, 1987? Yes, sir. How are you able to remember that? Because the date is in my album? I get that, but do you remember it? Yes, I remember the sale. Do you remember the date specifically? It was a while ago. Okay, So what you're stating here is the only reason you are saying that the sale was on January 17th is because that is the date written on the back of the picture in your album, right? Correct. So from there, the prosecutor suggested that the photo had been removed from the album so a date could be added to the back of it in order to provide Orr with a solid alibi. He said to Wanda, this specific photo was taped to your album, But around the edges of the picture, it looks like it had been glued before. Do you see that there is glue residue around the edges of your photo? She agreed that that's what it looked like. Would this suggest that the picture had been glued into the album, then removed, and then taped back in? No. Well, would you put both glue and tape on a picture when you're putting them into an album? No. How long did your husband have the beard after the two of you got married? Until February or March, I'm guessing. The prosecutor called a witness to rebut Wanda's testimony. A woman, an insurance claims adjuster, who had dinner with John Orr at the 1987 Fresno seminar. She was asked, Have you gone to conferences involving the topic of arson? 
I've only been to one. When was that one? In January of 1987. Where? Fresno. When you were there, did you see John Orr? Yes. When you saw him, did he have a beard? No. So the implication here is that the picture of Orr with a full beard, which is dated January 17, 1987, had to have been given a false date because just a day or two earlier, when witnesses had dinner with Orr, were able to testify that he did not have a beard when they dined with him at the Fresno seminar. Therefore, it would have been impossible for Orr to have grown a full beard in just a day or two, meaning that somebody had fudged the date on the photo of Orr in order to offer him an alibi for those fires. And that somebody was his wife, Wanda. When the prosecution gave their closing arguments, they made sure to highlight the strongest points of the case. The strong evidence that the actual fires and the fires in Orr's manuscript were nearly identical, and that the manuscript contained information that would have been impossible for anyone to know, not even arson investigators on the cases, unless they were there and had something to do with the fires. In fact, as they meticulously went down the timeline, beginning when Orr checked out of his hotel after the January 1987 Fresno conference, which was at 6.51 a.m., when you track Orr's movements heading through the Central Valley, along with the timeline in Orr's manuscript, everything lines up almost perfectly, from place to place, from time to time, from fire to fire. The fires that Orr set in real life mirrored the fires his character set in his book nearly exactly. His manuscript was a roadmap of John Orr's actual crimes. When it came to the expert who made the identification match between the latent fingerprint lifted off the incendiary device to Orr's fingerprints on file with the LAPD, it was impossible for there to have been any kind of conspiracy to frame John Orr because that particular fingerprint analyst had no idea who John Orr was. He had no knowledge of Orr's manuscript. He was not acquainted with any firefighters anywhere in or around Southern California, nor did he know what the case was about when he was asked to examine that print. Therefore, it would have been impossible for him to have taken any part in any kind of conspiracy to frame John Orr, as the defense had suggested. But to some, the most damaging information to Orr's case was the tracking device, and the fact that he made no attempt to figure out why he was being tracked or suspected of anything. He did nothing, he stayed quiet, he never brought it up. Anybody else who would have discovered that they were being surveilled by their own colleagues would have raised hell, if they were innocent. When the defense had a chance to give closing arguments, McCann focused on this whole thing being a conspiracy to frame Orr, that they were lying when they said Orr had not become a suspect until April 17, 1991. When he had Marvin Casey on the stand, he had a hard time telling the truth because when he was asked the hard questions, he had trouble maintaining eye contact as he spoke. McCann insisted just because he works for the fire department doesn't mean he's automatically telling the truth. 
He told the jury that just because they show you a piece of yellow paper and they tell you that this came from this fire doesn't mean that it did. So it's a little burnt. It could have come from anywhere. McCann said that he doesn't have to prove anything to the jury. He doesn't have to prove that there was a conspiracy to frame John Orr, that that burden falls on the prosecution to prove everything to you, not the defense. McCann criticized the failure to match the fingerprints back in 1989. Yet, after being mishandled with a broken chain of custody, two years later, they all of a sudden have Orr's fingerprint coming back as a match? The only conclusion this tells you is that the so-called mistake back in 1989 was not a mistake at all. Even though the fingerprint analyst was willing to get up on the stand, to fall on the sword, to take one for the team, this doesn't mean his conclusion was wrong. In fact, with all of his experience, we could say with almost near certainty that he was not mistaken, that that fingerprint in 1989 was not John Orr's. So with that, along with mostly unreliable eyewitnesses that could not definitely say that they saw or at the scene of any of the fires is enough for the jury to find reasonable doubt in this case. The prosecutor gave the second part of their closing arguments after that, and they gave the jury a synopsis of the defense strategy. When you don't have the facts on your side, then you argue the law. When you don't have the law on your side, then you argue the facts. When you don't have either the facts or the law on your side, then you call it a government conspiracy. Everybody is against me. They're framing me for this crime. This prosecution team are part of this conspiracy. Everybody's in on it. The police, the investigators, the feds, they're all in cahoots against me. It's me against the world, according to John Orr. It is all a show, a song and dance, and smoke and mirrors to try to take your attention away from the truth. The prosecutors told the jury, as for Orr, carrying all of these items along with him everywhere he went, matches, cigarettes, rubber bands, and yellow notepaper, that the idea that he had these items as a part of his training sessions, how many cigarettes, matches, and rubber bands do you need to teach people how to construct an incendiary device? If nothing else, he could have had just one device already put together to show the class. He certainly did not have to sit there and make a new one every single time for every single person who asked him to because it was such a simple thing to make. And Orr had so much of an overabundance of materials, much more than he would have ever needed for any training courses. But it was exactly what he needed to be a serial arsonist. And don't forget, in Orr's manuscript, he wrote that Aaron Stiles would stop the arsons if he ever got close to being caught. And that is exactly what Orr did. After he found the tracking device on his car, and when he became aware of the task force, all the fires at the retail stores completely stopped. The prosecutor finished up by saying this. We don't care why he did it. All we care about, and all you care about, is that he did it. All the evidence has shown that he did, and because of that, you must find this defendant guilty. The jury began deliberating on July 28, 1992. That was a Tuesday. The next day, the jury asked to see the first version of Orr's manuscript. 
and that they might possibly want to see the whole thing as well. Orr had only written three chapters when it seemed that he decided to start all over from the beginning. The prosecutor said that he didn't want the jury thinking that he didn't want them to see the whole manuscript, that it was the defense that wanted to keep it out of evidence. Orr's attorney told the judge that he did not want the jurors to read the section of the manuscript where Orr detailed a woman being raped. He would agree to allow the jury to see the whole thing if they redacted that portion. But guess who disagreed with his own defense attorney? Yep, his very own client, John Orr. He didn't want any of his writings redacted, not one single word. It was probably his big-ass ego talking, but he wanted the jury to read it all. The rape, the masturbation, whenever any of his characters had an erection. But the judge was like, yeah, no, we're going to go ahead and redact all that crap. So a handful of people sat down. Each of them were given about 30 pages of the manuscript. And they sat there highlighting each time that the arsonist had set a fire when he became aroused and then he pleasured himself. They redacted all of those words related to anything sexual in the book. I honestly can't believe that John Orr was completely comfortable with 12 complete strangers reading this garbage that he wrote when all it would serve to do is possibly provide the jury with information that could be considered a motive. What an idiot. This guy is so arrogant and gross that he wanted them all to read his nasty ass fantasies. Yuck. Nasty. Gross. Barf. Ew. Ugh. So anyway, the jury deliberated for three days when they came back with their verdict. The court clerk read it out loud. We, the jury, in the above entitled case, find as to the defendant, John Leonard Orr, the following verdict. Count one, arson, on or about January 15, 1987, at Hancock Fabrics in Fresno, California, not guilty. At this point, both the prosecution and the defense had stipulated from the beginning that they agreed that all five of the fires that Orr was being charged with were set by the same person, so if they found Orr not guilty on this one count, they were going to find him not guilty on all counts. Count two, arson, on or about January 13, 1987, at the House of Fabrics in Fresno, California, not guilty. Count three, arson, on or about January 16, 1987, at Family Bargain Center in Tulare, California, guilty. Count four, arson, on or about January 16, 1987, at Craftmart in Bakersfield, California, guilty. Count five, arson, on or about January 16, 1987, at Hancock Fabrics in Bakersfield, guilty. John Orr, who had been free on bail, was immediately taken into custody because these crimes were particularly violent and could have potentially caused a great deal of harm or death. His attorney reminded the court that Orr had more trials to face and needed to be out of custody in order to prepare, but the judge said that he must remand Orr because of the violent nature of his crimes. He's convicted now. He has the potential to inflict harm or death. He's got to go to jail. Thank God, right? Orr's sentencing was scheduled for November 2, 1992. His attorney, Doug McCann, asked if his client could read a prepared written statement to the court, which is detailed in Fire Lover, so I'll share it with you. 
The judge said that he could, so Orr stood up and said, As the court is aware, I have proclaimed my innocence of these charges since the day that I was arrested, December 4th, 1991. This proclamation was immediate before I ever saw any information contained in the affidavit or had any idea what the evidence was. I knew I was innocent of any wrongdoing and told investigators of that unequivocally at the time. The U.S. Attorney's Office was repeatedly advised of the fact that they were offered an open interview with me, which they refused. The U.S. Attorney's Office was also offered a polygraph and psychological exam, and all of these offers were refused as well. Your Honor, the U.S. Attorney's Office was listening, but they were not hearing. To coin a phrase that the U.S. Attorneys proclaimed as my admission of guilt, uttered by me at an interview, I won't close the door on that. I didn't close the door then, and even now, I welcome any discussion with their investigators about this case. The Los Angeles U.S. Attorney's Office has taken a similar closed-door policy, and they would surely be surprised at irrefutable information that they could have accessed months ago, which could have saved them thousands of hours of investigation. This information proves my innocence in Los Angeles, but was overlooked in haste after reading the manuscript. There was never any presumption of innocence. The presentation of my manuscript as a journal of my fire-setting activities is fictional, just as points of origin is fictional. In the manuscript, there are 29 fires described. Only three bear any resemblance to the actual fires that occurred in Fresno in 1987. Only three out of 29 occurred in retail establishments. The rest are fires set in alleys and garages, the more common type of targets of the type of arsonist I portrayed in the book. The uncanny similarities that the U.S. attorney portrayed as evidence against me are merely facts that were passed along among investigators in meetings in 1987 and subsequent to that date and later inserted into my manuscript. Simple research. As I stated in solicitation letters I sent to publishers, points of origin is simply fact-based fiction. I believe the court and the U.S. attorney's perception of me is that I am a reasonably intelligent man. No, you're not. Respected in the fire service. No, you're not. With an unblemished record. No, it isn't. Until December of 1991. Certainly not the kind of person that would create havoc by fire in the San Joaquin Valley and keep a journal of fire setting experiences, write a manuscript chronicling the events, and then attempt to have it published. Uh, yeah, that's exactly what you would do, John Orr. That's how much of an arrogant idiot you are. He continued, the National Enquirer couldn't have come up with a more ludicrous story. I am not a fool. Uh, yeah, you are. The fingerprint issue. Why is it that out of all the charges against me, only in that one was the chain of custody a serious problem? Exculpatory evidence was discarded shortly after discovery. Expert witnesses could not tell what they compared, and the print was clearly not mine in 1989. Assuredly, there is reasonable doubt as to its value in 1992. I was found not guilty on two counts, one of which was an attempted arson that occurred two weeks before the conference in Fresno. This certainly substantiated the fact that these fires were perpetrated by the same person 
by somebody local. Your Honor, my life has been dedicated to the fire service and law enforcement for over 22 years. I have personally been trapped by fire and smoke on three occasions. I know the panic, the terror, the helplessness that even a well-equipped firefighter can experience as a fire advances uncontrolled. Yeah, we know that's John Orr's favorite thing in the whole world to tug off to, right? I know how those witnesses felt. My heart went out to them. Aw, what a shitty asshole. I don't wish that kind of experience on anyone, and I feel helpless and frustrated because the person responsible for this remains at large. I have fought fires, performed rescues, and carried the bodies of men, women, and children who have died as a result of fire and smoke. I have been devastated by this misguided investigation. But beyond that, the fire service has suffered with the perception that they were betrayed by one of their own. Your Honor, they have not been betrayed. They and I have been victimized by a total lack of communication and overzealous investigators. My personal reputation, my career speaks for itself, and I stand by it. I truly hope that justice will ultimately prevail, at least for the sake of the fire service. Your Honor, thank you for the opportunity to be heard. Whatever your decision is on my sentencing, I will continue to abide by the court's orders as I have from the beginning of this personal nightmare and continue to fight to prove my innocence. Orr's defense attorney, Doug McCann, was going to make a statement to plea for leniency. His statement is also in Fire Lover, and I will share that with you. He said, I saw a jury convict Mr. Orr. It's not surprising that they convicted him because of the fingerprint evidence. That was the entire case. I don't know if I stand here next to a man who didn't commit these fires. Uh, that doesn't sound very confident or reassuring coming from the defense attorney, I'm just saying. You have just heard from him telling you that he did not start these fires. If John Orr was telling the court that he was responsible for the fires, I could say he's accepting responsibility, showing remorse, should receive something other than the maximum, he has no prior record, but I'm not in that situation. In terms of the psychiatric report, the doctor never really performed an evaluation, a psychiatric diagnostic study. He just basically said, if this man is guilty of these fires, given everything I know about the case, he's obviously very troubled. He obviously has a mental problem. He obviously would benefit from some type of care. Dreamers, to me, it's kind of sounding like a backhanded way of trying to say that John Orr has mental health issues and this should have some sort of impact on his sentencing. But the thing is, Orr isn't admitting to being the arsonist. He has vehemently denied having anything to do with it since his arrest in 1991 to this day. 30 years later, John Orr has never admitted to being the one who set all these fires, so he doesn't get to have it both ways. He doesn't get to claim that he's innocent but mentally ill, 
But nice try, though. His attorney continued. I don't know how in the world this court can overlook that. And he's referring to John Orr being obviously troubled with mental health issues. And I can answer that, Dreamers, because John Orr is saying he's an innocent man. And that is how the court is going to disregard any and all insinuations that his mental health had to be taken into consideration. Sorry, I'll continue. This just bothers me, this attorney. And honestly, I think it's bothering John Orr too. He says, I think the position of the U.S. attorneys here in Fresno is to treat him like a common criminal. Uh, duh. In sentencing, we always need to consider a motive. Here, I am talking with an assumption that he did it, and I'm standing next to a man who told the court that he didn't do it. It's a difficult argument for me to make. I can simply say that he's got no prior record. <sighs> Dreamers, it kind of sounds like to me that his attorney's trying to speak for leniency and he's saying things that he would say if his client had taken responsibility. I mean, how is the judge supposed to take motive into consideration when there has been no admission of guilt? How can a motive be defined if the defendant insists that he didn't do it? I wasn't impressed with this attorney's statement on behalf of his own client at all. It was weak. But he carried on. John Lopez, that was Orr's partner at work, testified that he went out and bought food for John Orr's family. That's a reflection not so much on John Lopez, but a reflection on John Orr that there are people who care about this man. Okay, so a guy that he's worked with side by side for three years goes and buys a meal for the guy one time and that is a reflection of the amazing character of John Orr please people care about this man whatever in fact there are fire investigators here to observe his sentence it actually turns one's stomach and that I actually agree with I don't know why they are enjoying it when the jury came back with the verdict of guilty was that a day of celebration? That was a very sad day for everybody involved. No, I'd say it was a day of celebration. The judge finally stopped McCann and reminded him that this was a public forum and the hearing was open to anyone who wanted to be there. McCann continued, I have no objection to them being here. I anticipate the U.S. attorney asking the court to give John Orr the maximum sentence to max him out for as long as possible with no inquiry as to why this happened. In fact, the prosecutor said, we don't even care why it happened. We got our guy. Motive is a factor that should be considered if the court is going to assume that he's guilty on the jury's findings. We have to ask ourselves, why did these fires start? Did John Orr get any benefit out of these fires? If there is no motive, then we have to look at the psychiatrist who said that if you make that assumption, then there is only one conclusion, that you have some type of pathology. Dreamers, doesn't it feel like this attorney is only making things worse for Orr? Any which way you look at this statement, it sounds like he believes Orr is guilty, 
and wants the court to overlook the fact that Orr has denied involvement and base the sentence on his guilt anyway, while taking Orr's motive and possible mental illness into consideration before handing down the sentence. He's basically admitting that Orr did this without outright saying it. And to be honest, I don't think that it needs to be said out loud what John Orr's motives actually were. So McCann continued, One other small point. The probation officer indicated that John Orr has nothing redeemable about his life because he's been living a life of fraud all these years because he's an arsonist. Well, finally, truer words have not been spoken yet thus far. As the court is aware, or has been a well-respected arson investigator and instructor, at least on that level, there are people that benefited from knowing him. And from there, McCann's attention was diverted towards Orr. The two of them whispered for a moment, and then McCann finished his statement by stating that he would submit it to his honor. John Orr basically told his attorney to sit down and shut up. The prosecutor spoke next. Your Honor, it is the government's position that the court should follow the probation report's recommendation and sentence Mr. Orr to the 30-year maximum 10 years on each count, which means that Mr. Orr will be eligible for parole in as little as 10 years. All the court has to do is remember Mr. Orr's own words about the panic, the terror, and the helplessness that is felt by the victims of arson fires. Who better than this man right here to know the danger that an arson fire creates than come into the court after a jury has found him guilty and proclaims his innocence? and proclaim that he had been set up by the government. It's ludicrous. He should get the maximum sentence, 30 years. He should be sentenced under 4205A, which requires him to spend a minimum of 10 years, and the court should order him to pay a fine. And it is the government's understanding that he has now sold his rights to his novel, I believe to HBO, and I would like the court to order restitution to be paid by the defendant and furthermore, Your Honor, this is somewhat of a day of celebration because a very dangerous man is no longer on the streets. And law enforcement does celebrate on the day when dangerous criminals are convicted and put away as required by the law. Thank you. Then it was the judge's turn. He stated, You chose in your own defense to not proclaim your innocence personally. That was a strategic decision, a choice you made to not tell the jury, I did not set these fires. That choice was yours, and it's respected. However, the evidence was substantial, and the evidence was sufficient to convict you. You are guilty of each of these counts, and what I must say to you as a sworn law enforcement officer is that the proof of your guilt and the fact that your guilt then establishes that you betrayed the highest trust that was placed in you to protect the public from the terror that you have described, and to care for them, and to use the great skill and respect that was afforded to you in your profession to do the right thing, not the wrong thing. I do find that you are a danger to the community, and that you are someone who must be incarcerated, and there must be an example made of this case. 
It is the judgment of this court, Mr. Orr, that as to counts three, four, and five, you are hereby committed to the Bureau of Prisons to be imprisoned for a term of 10 years as to each count to run consecutively with the other. I am sentencing you to a total of 30 years and you shall pay a restitution in the amount of $225,971 to the victims in this case, as will be specified by the probation officer. Orr's defense attorney asked for bail pending appeals that was swiftly denied. He also told the court that he would no longer be representing John Orr. Later, Orr said that his attorney was bitter, that he thought Orr was a disloyal client, so Orr fired him. His attorney did say that he was very unhappy to see how many people were in the gallery that were filled with so much happiness and joy that Orr was being put away for a long time. The task force that worked so hard to build their case, all of them were thrilled. It was written all over their faces. They could not hide their emotions. And there was one additional person in the gallery that had been paying very close attention to the trial because he had a vested interest in the case. And that would be Los Angeles County Deputy District Attorney Michael Cabral. Orr still needed to face trial for several arsons in the Los Angeles area before Cabral would get a crack at him. They were ready for the numerous arson cases that had the strongest evidence implicating John Orr, but they weren't quite ready for the biggest trial yet to come. And this would be a way for Orr to be off the streets and locked up for quite a long time while they worked to land Orr on California's death row for the murders of four innocent people. 50-year-old Ada Deal, her two-year-old grandson, Matthew Tridel, 26-year-old Carolyn Krause, and 17-year-old Jimmy Satina, all of them who perished eight years earlier at the devastating fire in South Pasadena at Ole's Home Center. All right, dreamers, I'm going to end this part here. When we come back for the next segment of the series, it's going to be the last. We are going to get into John Orr's next trial, and we're going to find out whether or not John Orr is going to be sitting on death row in San Quentin State Prison. Keep a lookout for the next part. Don't forget to come over to the Facebook discussion page to comment or leave any questions about this case. Or come on over to Twitter or Instagram, all the places you know where to find me. And check out our Patreon. If you have a dollar or two to spare each month, you'll have access to exclusive bonus episodes that you won't hear anywhere else. I want to thank you all so much for listening. I appreciate every single one of you. I'm looking forward to wrapping up this series with part six. So watch out for that. I'm your host, Roseanne. And until next time. Sweet dreams. <laughs>